Welcome to the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Wallner. Today we're looking at one of the most important American collectors of modern art, Peggy Guggenheim. In the second part of the show, I'll sit down with Francine Prose, author of the Jewish Lives biography, Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. To visit the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice is to see a hit parade of 20th century art. Picasso, Miro, Magritte, Man Ray, Dali, Calder, Giacometti. The most celebrated surrealist, cubist, and avant-garde artists are all there in her Venice palazzo. Yet when Peggy Guggenheim began collecting, no one considered these artists important. In fact, many considered their work bad. How did Peggy Guggenheim, an heiress with no formal art education, recognize the genius of these artists? How did she see what so many others missed? From an early age, Peggy Guggenheim was allergic to the conventional. Born in Manhattan in 1898, her family on both sides were German Jews who had created great fortunes in America. But bourgeois society was of no interest to Guggenheim. Looking out the windows of her family's Fifth Avenue mansion, she longed for something very different. When she traveled to Paris as a young woman in 1920, she saw the flourishing of Bohemian culture and was transfixed. On that trip, Peggy Guggenheim became a self-described art addict. In 1938, Peggy Guggenheim opened her first gallery, Guggenheim Jeune in London, where she was the first to exhibit some of the greatest modern art of the 20th century. Guggenheim's next dream was to create a museum of modern art, also in London. But when World War II intervened, she did something even more daring. She went to Europe and bought a painting a day, sending home so-called degenerate art that would have otherwise been destroyed by the Nazis. For a total of 145 works by artists now hanging in the world's most prestigious museums, Peggy Guggenheim paid a grand total of $40,000. Guggenheim got art out of Nazi Europe at considerable personal risk. She even rescued some Jewish artists who might otherwise have been sent to concentration camps, including André Breton and her future husband, Max Ernst. Peggy Guggenheim was also a generous champion of another group of artists receiving short shrift, women. For years, Guggenheim provided the novelist Junia Barnes with a living stipend that allowed her to continue writing. 
she bought a camera for photographer Bernice Abbott, raised funds for anarchist activist Emma Goldman to write her autobiography, and gave an exhibition at her second gallery in New York called 31 Women, the first show of modernist art devoted solely to female artists. And though she assembled a staggering collection of modernist art, Guggenheim claimed her greatest accomplishment was discovering an unknown painter working as a carpenter at her Uncle Solomon's Guggenheim Museum, Jackson Pollock. Peggy Guggenheim was never afraid to take risks on unknown artists, in her personal life, and with her considerable fortune. In her own words, she reflected, I look back on my life with great joy. I think it was a very successful life. I always did what I wanted and never cared what anyone thought. Women's lib? I was a liberated woman long before there was a name for it. Discover a spirited portrait of the colorful, irrepressible, and iconoclastic American collector who fearlessly advanced the cause of modern art in the Jewish Lives biography, Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern, by Francine Prose. Save 25% plus get free shipping. For a limited time only, use code PEGGY at checkout, only at jewishlives.org. Hi, Francine Prose, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alessandra. Thank you. Good to be here. Your subtitle of the book is The Shock of the Modern. Let's start with the word shock. Why did you choose that? <laughs> well, you know, it, has so, it turned out to have so many meetings appropriate for Peggy Guggenheim. I mean, for one, you know, the mo- most obvious meaning, meaning, I guess, is that much of the art that she liked which is so accepted now and so, you know, was considered shocking at the time. I mean, for example, she was one of the first supporters, patrons of Jackson Pollock before everyone understood what a great artist he was and when abstract art was still, uh, you know, a matter of some kind of of dispute or concern. So so there's the shocking aspect of, of... her taste in art. I mean, surrealism, another example, she liked Dali and so forth. But also she, her life was in many ways so shocking and she was so determined to be free and so determined not to live the kind of life that a woman of her generation and social class was was meant to live. And, and finally, she kind of went out of her way to be shocking. I mean, all the way through the, the book, I quote her... Uh, her memoir, which came out in several different versions. And it's just kind of startling the way she talks about her love affairs, her sex life, her nose job, her abortions. And, and even now, when things have changed so much, you read it and it's not just intentionally shocking, but it's actually sort of shocking. 
And especially so because she came from a pretty prominent family, an art-collecting family. Her uncle founded the Guggenheim Museum in Manhattan. But Peggy's taste was totally different from the older generation, and I'm curious how that happened. You know, she came from a very rich uh, German-Jewish family, On uh, you know, first on the Upper West Side, then on the Upper East Side. And her family was in, the Guggenheims were in the mining business. Her father was kind of the least, there, there were many brothers in her father's family. He was the least successful, the sort of black sheep of the family. And, um, but nonetheless, her mother was extremely proper and extremely conservative. And she was being raised to have this, you know, the perfect life of, of a woman in that class. I mean, to have all the bright silverware and dishes and home decor, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it seems pretty clear that she was not in line with the program from very early on. And then when she was an early teenager, I think 12, her father uh, died on the Titanic. He was sailing home from Europe and, and sank with the Titanic. And she adored her father, even though her father was a huge womanizer, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that kind of confirmed her and her desire not to live that life. And, and early on, she got a job at a bookstore in Manhattan. And uh, she started meeting all these kind of boho types and rebels and artists and so forth. And they were so much more interesting and compelling to her than the people she'd grown up around that she uh, decided again early on that she, that that was the life she wanted for herself and that she was going to, as soon as possible, turn her back on the life she'd been raised for and, and lead this other life more like that of the people who she was meeting in the bookstore. And that reminds me of one of her early achievements, which was getting so-called degenerate art she purchased during World War II out of Nazi-occupied Europe, which was pretty rebellious. And so I'd love if you'd tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, she it was extraordinary. She was in Paris and she was buying art pretty much until the day that the Germans uh, rolled into Paris. And, and she was saying that her, her uh, mission was to buy a painting a day. And she bought sculpture as well. And, and also because the artists knew what was coming. She got really good bargains on a lot of the art because the artists just wanted the cash. So, I mean, there's a story in the book about her negotiations with Brancusi to buy Bird in Flight. And he really didn't want to sell it to her. But but by the end, he, like so many, was quite desperate and sold it to her. So she, you know, she had this crate full of art and she packed it. She knew that she was going to have trouble with customs and so forth, getting it out of the country. So she packed it up in this gigantic crate with all her household goods. So it was in the blankets and the pots and pans and so forth. And, you know, at some point, I mean, the book begins, she's in Marseille and right at the early part of the Nazi occupation of France. And Kay Boyle, who has married Peggy's first husband, Lawrence Vale, she's taunting Peggy and she convinces her that the crates in which Peggy has packed the art to ship to the United States has been on a boat that's been sunk by the Germans. And of course, Peggy is very upset. And then Kay Boyle reveals it's a joke, haha. But when you think about it and you think about the art that would have been at the bottom of the ocean had that been true, it would have been just a huge loss to, to art history. And with that art, 
she opened a gallery in Midtown Manhattan in 1942, which was, first of all, unusual for a woman in that period. And second, Art of the Century was an equally unusual gallery. Can you take us on a little tour through that space? <laughs> yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, of all the places in history that I wish I could have been, she had, you know, some of it was she had installations before anyone knew what an installation was, really. Duchamp was one of her advisors. I mean, the other thing about Peggy Guggenheim was that she had, I mean, I think she's remarkably intelligent on her own, but part of her intelligence was that she had a series of advisors who told her what was good and what wasn't good. And by that point, she and Duchamp were quite close and he was helping her decide what to show and what to buy. And it was sort of a meeting place for for artists and people involved in the art world then. So it was you know, a social center, it was an art gallery. It was, she had extraordinary shows. I mean, there's still, you can get, and I have in my collection, a a compendium of all the catalogs for the shows that she had in Art of the Century. And really there's no one that you could possibly have heard of and many people who you never heard of who showed at the gallery during the period that it was open. And she kind of had a theatrical flair with it too, didn't she? Well, yeah. I mean, to have these, there was a kind of a, you know, it was on a conveyor belt and and there were these paintings that opened and shut. And I mean, there were all these kind of mechanical, as I said, installations and dark rooms and light rooms. And there was a surrealist room and an ab- abstract shows. So it was, it was extraordinary. I mean, there was no gallery, there had been no gallery like it. And I don't think there's ever been one since. And As a patron of modernism, Peggy Guggenheim was such a groundbreaking figure, yet she often said herself that she suffered from an inferiority complex, her words. Can you explain that tension that seems to have affected her personal life? (laughs) Well, yeah, she was a mess, really. I mean, and it started very early. I mean, she, for example, uh, she hated her nose, and she decided very early on to get a nose job. And I think she went to Cincinnati. I can't remember somewhere in the Midwest to have it done. And and it was botched in the middle. I mean, something went horribly wrong and, and she just called it off in the middle of the surgery. So, you know, since then she was, after that, she was kind of obsessed with her nose. But if you look at, at photographs, there was nothing wrong with it. I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. Likewise, she was convinced she was homely. She had huge doubts about her appearance and her, ability to be attractive to men. But all of that was just generated from within. I mean, she was perfectly attractive. She had tons of lovers. She did have a major drinking problem like everyone else of her generation, it seems to me. So that factored into part of it. And she had possibly the world's worst taste in men. I mean, she had, you know, she had lots of lovers and several husbands and so forth. But they were abusive. I mean, quite a number of them were abusive. Certainly her first husband, Lawrence Vail, and John Holmes, with whom she lived in the British countryside. And Max Ernst, who she finally married. I mean, he essentially, it was it was that generation's equivalent of a green card marriage. She brought him to this country and he married her to help get citizenship. But she he was awful to her. He treated her terribly. So so none of these men were particularly nice to her. Sad personal life. So another part of her personal life, she was very secular, but her Jewish heritage did impact her life. We talked a little bit about this with the art, but can you give us a sense of other ways? 
she wasn't comfortable with it. I mean, she was never particularly comfortable with it. And she, uh, for one thing, she was surrounded by anti-Semites. I mean, when you see the things that people around her, I mean, including her first husband, said about Jews, and she just, she seems never to have objected to it particularly, and she just seems to have internalized it to a certain extent. I mean, she was never religious and never particularly proud of her heritage, although that was certainly a huge part of who she was. Another thing that became a big part of who she was was her final home in Venice and the museum she opened there. Why Venice? After she left New York, I mean, she left Europe during the war to come to New York, and New York became more and more uncomfortable for her for all sorts of reasons. I mean, her marriage to Ernst had gone bad, and she felt the gallery, she closed the gallery and so forth, and she decided to go back to Europe, and she didn't want to go back to Paris again, or she just wasn't as at home there as she'd been as a younger person. And she loved Venice, so she was able to to find this sort of semi-constructed palazzo and bought it and found a way for something which she'd always wanted, which was a way to live in her art, to live among the art she'd collected. The clearest way to see what her achievement was is to go to the Guggenheim Foundation Museum in Venice and it's just astonishing. You go, you know, oh my God, there's a Picasso and there's a Pollock and there's a Tanguay and an Arp and so forth. So so the extent of her collecting and the and the eye she had, which was also extraordinary, is clearly on view there. By all means read the book, but I think I think one really needs to see what it was that she accomplished, which was extraordinary. The museum is such a gem and a tangible expression of her legacy. And I am curious, though, are there any parts of her legacy that you think are overlooked or underappreciated? Well, I think she's still underappreciated. I mean, for example, one of the people I interviewed was John Richardson, the great Picasso biographer. And he said, well, you know, Peggy was very stupid. She had great advisors, but she was very stupid. And I don't think she was stupid at all. I think she's remarkably intelligent. And if you read her her memoirs, which were not written by her advisors, they're fantastic. I mean, they're just bright as could be. So I think, I think again, because she was a woman, possibly because she was Jewish, because she lived at the time she lived, she was and continues to be underestimated. And if you could speak with Peggy Guggenheim, is there anything you would say or ask her? Well, I would just like to tell her how how important she was and how really grateful we all are for what she accomplished. And, um, you know, whatever her particular insecurities were, I would just say, forget about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Francine Prose, for talking with us about your book, Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a pleasure. The Jewish Lives podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, Jewish Lives editorial director Eileen Smith, series editors Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, managing director Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Wallner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen.
Groucho Marx once said, Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Watch for forthcoming Jewish Lives titles, including Bugsy Siegel. Learn more about our books at jewishlives.org.